Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Thanks for tuning in today to the Living Church Podcast. I'm Amber Noel, your host. Today, we're going to make a move into the contemplative. Every so often, we like to run an episode that moves away from conversation and into an opportunity for deep listening to the voices of the past. Our classic text series is like getting a mini audiobook every six weeks or so by a famous author in the Christian tradition and read by various folks around the communion. Today, we hear from Spanish mystic and doctor of the church, St. Teresa of Avila, and we step inside the seventh mansion of her interior castle. Our reader today is Sarah Cornwell. She's a writer in the Hudson Valley, a laywoman, and a mother of five. And she's written many things for TLC. But if you want to catch her most often, you can check out our daily devotional. Just go to livingchurch.org, go to the right-hand side of the homepage, and look under the daily devotional header. You can click there to read today's devotional, to search for Sarah's work, and scroll to the bottom to subscribe to the daily devotional. We'll also include a link to subscribe in our show notes today. I'm keeping the intro short today because Sarah provides us an intro to the work and the author herself. But I just want to say warm thanks to Sarah for taking us into this medieval, strange, yet still lucid world of Teresa of Avila. We hope you enjoy this excerpt from a spiritual classic, The Interior Castle. The Interior Castle is a treatise on the immense power of prayer and how it may unlock doors and guide us through the many rooms of our soul to reach the center, which is perfect union with God. It was written by St. Teresa of Avila, 
for the nuns of the convent of Our Lady of Mount Carmel in around the year 1577. St. Teresa was many things, a 16th century Spanish mystic, a Carmelite nun, and a deeply respected religious leader who, along with St. John of the Cross, founded an ascetic sect of the Carmelite order. Centuries later, in 1970, Pope Paul VI recognized her as the first female doctor of the church. At an early age, St. Teresa felt called away from a life of privilege to pursue a religious life of poverty, discipline, and obedience, which you can read about in her beautiful autobiography. She suffered from serious ailments her whole life, including what seemed to be severe migraines. She had these episodes even during the writing of The Interior Castle, where in the preface she admits to great pain in her head and the weakness in her body. Throughout her life, she continued to acknowledge the pain and its limitations to a point, but her suffering always sat alongside the roles and responsibilities which God had nevertheless called her to, roles which she fulfilled with well-documented gusto and humor. Briefly summarized, the interior castle is the result of one of St. Teresa's many visions in which she beheld the soul as a beautiful castle made of pure crystal or diamond. In her visions, the castle of the soul contains seven mansions, and each one of us must move through these seven mansions in order to arrive at complete union with God. But the progress isn't inevitable. Many spend their whole lives in the courtyard, never knowing or caring how to enter or how to draw nearer to the one who dwells in the peaceful and radiant center of that delightful place. The journey begins with repentance and forgiveness after which one may pass through the gate and enter the basement. Progress through the seven mansions may be divided into stages, turning from sin to virtue in mansions one through three, learning to engage in illuminative prayer in mansions four and five, and finally, betrothal and marriage with the bridegroom in mansions six and seven. There are references to reptiles and vermin in the first six mansions which try to block the path of progress. They are demonic forces and sins that would distract and tempt away from God, the beloved object of our journey. I will be reading the final two chapters of the seventh mansion, in which St. Teresa describes the silent peace of this place, the resting place of the soul. After reading her description of this mansion, I would wager it is difficult to not feel a yearning to make this spiritual journey towards the beloved which is beckoning to you. St. Teresa says in her preface that she expects her words will be of no use to anyone else outside of the group of nuns for whom she writes, but in this she has been quite wrong. Over the centuries, readers have found immense inspiration and comfort in her vivid and honest prose. A quick note on St. Teresa's prayer at the very end, in which Teresa prays that the Lord may enlighten the Lutherans. It serves as an interesting reminder that Teresa was writing this during the great upheaval of the Protestant Reformation. I hope her prayer will be taken by all listeners in her own spirit of concern on behalf of all Christians and the state of our souls, whatever our state of agreement may be. As a former Lutheran appreciative of my upbringing, I found her prayer perhaps a little amusing, but also touching. In the end, it is no light thing to have a saint pray for you. I will begin at chapter 3 of the Seventh Mansion. 
At these final stages through the interior castle, St. Teresa imagines the transformation of the individual as like a silkworm, who, after hatching from the egg and nourishing itself on meditation, prayer, confession, and contemplation of God's word, enters into a cocoon that is Christ, where it must then die and reemerge as a moth, or as she says, a beautiful butterfly. And now, the Seventh Mansion, Chapter 3, by St. Teresa of Avila, translated from the Spanish by the Reverend John Dalton. Since we have said that this butterfly dies with very great joy because she has found rest, and that Christ lives in her, let us now consider what kind of life she leads, or what is the difference between her present state and her former when she was alive. For we shall see by the effects whether that be true which has been mentioned. As far as I understand, these following are some of the effects. The first is a forgetfulness of herself, so that she truly seems, as I have said, no longer to exist. For she is affected in such a way that she neither knows herself nor remembers that there is either heaven or life or honor destined for her, being entirely engaged in seeking the glory of God. And hence it seems that the words spoken by his majesty have affected the work, these that she should mind his affairs, and that he would take care of hers. Thus she is not troubled at whatever happens to her, but she so strangely forgets herself that, as I have already said, she seems to herself not to exist, nor would she desire to live, except when she perceives she can in any way advance, however little, the honor and glory of God, for which she would very gladly lay down her life. But do not imagine, daughters, that on this account she neglects to take any care about eating and sleeping, which are a great torment to her, and doing everything to which she is obliged by her state of life. We are speaking of interior things, for as regards exterior works, little can be said. It is rather an affliction to her to consider how all that she is able to do by her own strength is a mere nothing. Whatever she understands would conduce to the honor of our Lord, she would not omit for anything in the world. The second effect is a great desire for suffering. Yet it is not like what she formerly had, for that used to disturb her. The desire which such souls have that God's will may be done in them is so excessive that they receive with pleasure whatever his majesty sends them. If he wish them to suffer, they are content. If not, they do not torment themselves about it as they used to do at other times. These souls feel likewise a great interior joy when they are persecuted, for then they enjoy more peace than that I have ever before spoken of, and they do not feel the least hatred against their persecutors. Nay, they conceive for them a particular affection, so much so that if they see them in any affliction, they feel it keenly, pity them, and most sincerely recommend them to God, on condition that he would, in exchange, bestow these afflictions on themselves, in order that they might not offend his majesty. Virginia Theological Seminary's Center for Anglican Communion Studies invites you to join a discussion with Bishop Michael Curry about his new book, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. 
The virtual event takes place this coming Tuesday, November 10th at 1245 p.m. Eastern. You can register for this free event on the VTS Eventbrite page. Just go to eventbrite.com and type Bishop Michael Curry in the search bar. What I wonder at the most of all is that as you have seen how great were the sufferings and afflictions which they endured through their longing to die in order to enjoy our Lord, so also is the desire great which they have to serve him that so he may be praised by their means. They also desire to benefit, if they can, some soul. Hence, they not only do not desire to die, but to live many years and to endure very great crosses, in order that our Lord, by their means, may be honored, however little. And though they were sure, when the soul left the body, immediately to enjoy God, they make no account of this and think as little on the glory which the saints possess. They do not desire it at present, since all their glory consists in their being able to assist in something their crucified Lord, especially when they see him so much offended, and so few who disengage from all other things have his honor truly at heart. It is true that sometimes when they forget this, the desires of enjoying God and of leaving this land of exile come upon them with tenderness, considering how little they serve him. But immediately returning to themselves, they reflect how they have him continually with them. And with this, they are satisfied, offering to his majesty their willingness to live as being the most precious offering they can make. They have no fear of death, but look upon it as a sweet trance. The fact is, he who before gave those desires with that excessive torture now gives this other. May he be blessed and praised forever. Thus the desires of these souls do not now run after consolations and delights, because they have Christ our Lord with them, and his majesty now lives in them. It is manifest that as his life was nothing else but a continual torment, so he makes ours such, at least by desire, and he leads us as being feeble, Though in other things, when he sees necessary, he gives us strength. They feel in themselves a disengagement from everything and a desire of being always alone or employed in things relating to the good of some soul. They have no aridities nor internal troubles, but always have a memory and a tenderness for our Lord, so that they would gladly do nothing but praise him. And when they became negligent, our Lord himself excites them, so that it is clearly seen that this impulse or I know not what to call it, proceeds from the interior of the soul, as I mentioned when speaking of impetuosities. Here it is done with great sweetness, but it comes neither from the fancy, nor from the memory, nor any other thing, whereby one can discover that the soul did nothing on her part. This is so usual and happens so often that one may very easily observe it, for as a fire, however large it may be, does not send forth its flames downwards, but upwards, so this internal motion is here discovered to proceed from the center of the soul, and thus it excites the faculties. Truly, were there no other advantage in this method of prayer than discovering the particular care God takes in communicating himself to us, and how he entreats us to abide with him, I think that all the pains endured for the enjoyment of these sweet and penetrating proofs of his love are well bestowed. This, sisters, you will find true by experience, 
For I think that when a soul has arrived at the prayer of union, our Lord takes this care of us if we keep his commandments. When then this shall happen to you, remember it belongs to this interior mansion where God resides in our soul and praise him exceedingly, for that message certainly comes from him. And the note is written with so much affection and in such a way that he intends you alone should understand the handwriting and what he wishes you to do. Hence, then, on no account neglect to answer his majesty, however engaged in exterior things and in conversation with other persons. For it may happen oftentimes that our Lord will wish to bestow this secret favor upon you in public. And as the answer must be interior, it is very easy to make an act of love or to say what St. Paul said, Lord, what will thou have me do? Then, in many ways, he will teach you what you should do to please him. And the time is very opportune, for then he seems to hear us. This delicate touch of his almost always disposes the soul to be able to do with a firm resolution that which has been mentioned before. The difference between this mansion and the rest is that there are scarcely ever any aridities or interior disturbances, like what used to be at other times in all the rest. But the soul is almost always in quiet, and she is never afraid that this sublime gift would be counterfeited by the devil, and therefore she is confident it comes from God. As I have before mentioned, the senses or powers have nothing to do here, for his majesty has discovered himself to the soul, and he has taken her along with him to a place where, in my opinion, the devil dare not come, nor will our Lord allow him. And all the favors he bestows here on the soul are without her doing anything on her part, except what she has already done in resigning herself entirely to God. Whatever our Lord does to the soul and all that he teaches her passes in such quiet and without noise that it seems to me to resemble the building of Solomon's temple when no noise was heard. And so in this temple of God, for this mansion is his, wherein he and the soul sweetly enjoy each other in the most profound silence. There is no need for the understanding to stir or to seek after anything, for the Lord who created it wishes it to remain quiet here and through a little chink to behold what passes within. For though at certain times this sight be lost and cannot be seen, yet it is only for a short time. Since, in my opinion, the powers are not lost here, but they do not work. They are, as it were, stupefied. Join James K. A. Smith and others for a conversation on St. Augustine, engaging the questions posed by the multiple challenges of 2020. This online event is free to join. To register, use the link in the show notes for this episode. Sponsored by New City Press and Brazos Press. We have always noticed that those who have been nearest to Christ our Lord have been the most afflicted. Consider what his glorious mother suffered and the glorious apostles. How, think you, was St. Paul able to endure such great labors? In him, we see what effects true visions and contemplation produce when they come from our Lord and not from the imagination or deceit of the devil. 
When he had these visions, did he hide himself in order thereby to enjoy these delights without applying himself to anything else? You see, as far as we can understand, he had not one day's rest, no, nor one night's, for he labored at night for his living. I am greatly delighted with St. Peter, when, as he was flying from prison, our Lord appeared to him and told him he was going to Rome to be crucified. Whenever the office of this festival is said, in which the above words are mentioned, I feel a particular consolation in considering how St. Peter was affected, after having received this favor from our Lord, since it encouraged him immediately to meet death. And it was no small favor of our Lord that St. Peter found one to put him to death. O oh, my sisters, how forgetful must that soul be of her own comfort, what little account she must make of honor, and how far is she from desiring to be esteemed in anything in whom our Lord resides in, in so particular a manner. If she be entirely taken up with him, as it is proper she should, she must be wholly forgetful of herself, and all her thoughts and study will be how to please this Lord and by what means she may be able to express the love she has for him. For this object does she pray. Here too does this spiritual marriage tend, from which good works always come. This is a true sign that the favor comes from God, for it is of little advantage to be solitary, to be making acts of love and of other virtues to our Lord, reposing and promising to do wonders for his honor, if upon leaving that place an occasion offers, I do quite the contrary. I spoke incorrectly when I said it is of little advantage, for all the time which is spent with God is very profitable, and His Majesty will sometimes find means of accomplishing these resolutions, though we may be weak in fulfilling them afterwards, and this perhaps to our grief. For it often happens that, when he sees a soul very cowardly, he sends her a great affliction, much against her will, but he draws her out of it with profit. And when the soul afterwards perceives this, she is not so afraid to expose herself to the like again. I wish to mention that the affliction is but little in comparison with the far greater gain which is acquired when the works correspond with the acts and words mentioned, and that she who cannot do all at once should do it gently and by degrees. And if she wished to derive any benefit from prayer, she should also bend her will. For even in these little retired spots, she will not want many occasions of exercising patience. Remember that this is much more important than I can express. Fix your eyes on your crucified Lord, and everything will seem easy to you. If His Majesty shows His love for us by such wonderful works and torments, how can you desire to please Him by words only? Do you know what it is to be truly spiritual? It is to be the slaves of God. Those who are signed with his mark, which is the cross, he may sell all over the world for slaves, as he himself was sold. For as you have already given him your liberty, that of being his slaves will not injure you. Rather, it will be a great favor for you. But unless souls be resolved to do this, they will never improve much. For, as I said, the foundation of all this building is humility. And if this be not very sincere, our Lord will not allow the building to rise high, lest it should fall entirely to the ground. This would not be for our good.
Hence, sisters, in order that your humility may be well-grounded, let each one of you endeavor to be inferior to all the rest and to become their slave, seeking how to please and to serve them. Because what you do in such cases is more for your benefit than for theirs. By laying down such strong stones, the castle can never fall. I repeat, it is necessary for this purpose that the foundation should not consist of prayer and contemplation only. For unless you acquire virtues by the exercise of them, you will always be behind. God grants it may be merely a fault of not increasing. For you know well that in the spiritual life, he who does not increase must decrease. I consider it impossible for love to stand still. You may imagine, perhaps, that I speak of beginners, and that these may afterwards take their rest. But I've already told you, the rest which these souls possess in their interior is given them, because they possess so very little in the exterior. For what end, think you, are these inspirations, or to speak more correctly, those aspirations and messages, which the soul from her interior center sends to the people around the castle and to the other mansions, which are outside that in which she resides. Is it, do you think, that they may send themselves to sleep? No, no, no. For then it excites a fiercer war to keep the faculties, senses, and all that is corporeal from being idle than it did when she suffered with them. For then she knew not the immense benefit which afflictions bring. And these, perhaps, have been the means employed by God to advance her so far. And as the company which she enjoys gives her greater strength than ever, for if, as David says, with the holy wilt thou be holy, no doubt, but that she, by becoming one with the strong, through so heavenly a union of spirit with spirit, must needs receive strength. And hence we shall find that the saints acquired their strength both for suffering and dying. It is very certain that with the strength which she thence derives, she assists all those within the castle and even the body itself. It often seems to have no sense in it, being fortified with the strength which the soul has in her, and having drunk of the wine of this cellar into which her spouse has conducted her, and from which he will not allow her to depart. This wine diffuses itself in the weak body, as the meat does, which when taken diffuses its strength to the head and the whole of the body. Hence she is great trouble as long as she lives, because however much she does, her internal strength is far greater, and so is the war which she wages. Everything that she does seems nothing to her. Hence, we may account for the severe penances which many saints practice, and particularly the glorious Mary Magdalene, who had always been brought up amidst such delights. Hence that hunger which our father Elias had for the honor of his God, and which St. Dominic and St. Francis had for exciting the soul to praise him. I assure you, these must have endured great things, through thus forgetting themselves. This I wish you, sisters, to endeavor to obtain. Let us desire it and employ ourselves in prayer, not in order to enjoy ourselves, but to attain this strength to serve our Lord. Let us not beg to walk in a new way, 
for we shall lose ourselves at a better time. It would be very strange to suppose we could possess these favors from God by any other way than by that along with he himself went and all his saints. Never think of such a thing. Believe me, Martha and Mary must go together in entertaining our Lord, and in order to have him always with us, we must treat him well and provide food for him. How could Mary have entertained him in sitting always at his feet if her sister had not helped her? His food is that we should strive in every possible way that souls may be saved and may praise him. You may make two objections. One that our Lord told Mary she had chosen the better part. True, because she had always performed the office of Martha and showed great regard for our Lord by washing his feet and wiping them with her hair. Do you think it was a small mortification to a woman of rank as she was to go along the streets and perhaps alone, for her zeal made her take no notice of what way she went, and to go into a house she had never entered before? Then she had to endure the mortification of the Pharisee and many other things besides, for to behold in the city such a woman who had made such a change, and as we know among such wicked people, to whom it was sufficient only to see that she had an affection for our Lord, whom they so deeply hated. And when they remembered her former life and how she had now desired to become a saint, for it was clear she must immediately change her dress and every other vanity, what would people do then when now they talk of persons who are not so remarkable as she? I tell you, sisters, the better part fell to her lot in the numerous afflictions and mortifications she had to endure, and had there been no more but that of seeing her master so deeply hated, that was an intolerable cross. What then must have been those numerous crosses which she endured at the death of our Lord? I am convinced that the reason why she did not suffer martyrdom was because she endured it when she saw him die, and during the years she lived afterwards when she found herself absent from him. This must have been a dreadful torment to her. Hereby may be seen that she did not always enjoy the delight of contemplation at the feet of our Lord. The other objection you may make is that you neither have power nor opportunity of gaining souls to God, which you would very willingly do. But not being authorized to instruct or preach, as the apostles did, you know not how to accomplish this. I have answered this objection somewhere, though I cannot tell you whether or no I have done so in this book. But because it is a matter which occupies your thoughts, through the ardent desires which our Lord gives you, I will not hesitate to repeat what I have said. I have already told you elsewhere how the desire excites within us strong desires of doing things impossible, in order that we may leave what we have to do at present, so as to serve our Lord in things possible to be done and may rest satisfied with having desired those impossibilities. Setting aside the consideration that by prayer you can do great good, do not desire to benefit everyone except those who are in your company, a work so much the nobler as you are so much the more indebted to them. Do you think the gain small, that you have such great humility and mortification, and that you are the servant of all, and that you also have such great charity for them and such love for our Lord that this fire inflames everyone and you are continually exciting them by the practice of your other virtues. 
your gain will be exceedingly great and your service highly pleasing to our Lord. And by doing this which you are able, his majesty will observe your readiness to do much more if you could, and he will accordingly reward you as if you had gained many souls to him. You will reply, This is not converting them, because they are all good. Who has suggested this objection? The better they are made by your, by your means, the more pleasing to God will their praises of him be, and their prayers will be more profitable to their neighbors. In a word, my sisters, I will conclude with this advice. Do not erect towers without a foundation. Because our Lord does not pay so much regard to the greatness of the works as to the love whereby they are performed. When we do what we can, His Majesty will make us more and more powerful every day, provided we do not grow tired immediately, but that during the short space of this life, much shorter perhaps than any of you may imagine, we offer both interiorly and exteriorly to God, the sacrifice that we are able, and his majesty will unite it with that in which he offered to his father on the cross for us, in order that it may receive such value as our affection deserves, however small or trifling the work may be. May his majesty grant my sisters and daughters that we may all meet together in that place where we may forever please him, And may he give me grace to perform some of those things which I have mentioned to you. This I beg through the merits of his Son, who liveth and reigneth forever and ever. I acknowledge my confusion is great, and therefore, through the same Lord, I beseech you not to forget this poor sinner in your prayers. Though when I began to write this discourse, I felt the confusion above mentioned, yet after it was finished, I was exceedingly satisfied with it, and I consider my trouble, which I acknowledge to have been very little, to be well bestowed. Hence, considering your very strict enclosure, and the few recreations, my sisters, which you have, and the want of some conveniences that are requisite in some of our monasteries, I think it will be some pleasure to you to recreate yourselves in this interior castle, into which you may enter without leave of your superioress and walk there at any hour you please. It is true you cannot enter into all the mansions of the castle by your own strength, though you may think it very great, except the Lord thereof allow you to enter. I wish then to advise you not to use any violence if you meet with some resistance, for you may thus displease him so far as to cost you some trouble. He is a great lover of humility, and by considering yourselves unworthy even to enter the third mansion, you will the sooner obtain his goodwill and favor to allow you afterwards to enter the fifth, and you may serve him there in such a manner by often repairing thither that he may at length admit you into that mansion reserved for himself, whence you should never depart unless you are called away by the superioress, whose will this great Lord wishes you to observe as punctually as his own. And though by her command you may be much abroad, yet when you return, he will always open the door to you. Being once accustomed to this castle, you will find rest in all things, though exceedingly painful with the hope of returning there again, and no one will be able to take it away from you. 
though I have spoken only of seven mansions. Yet in each of these seven there are many others, above, below, and on the sides, with beautiful gardens, fountains, and other various delights, so that you would desire even to be dissolved into the praises of that great God, who created your soul in his image and likeness. If you see anything in this method which helps to instruct you in the knowledge of him, be assured that his majesty has said it in order to comfort and encourage you. Whatever you find amiss, know it was spoken by myself. Through the great desire I have of being some use in assisting you to serve this my, my Lord and God, I entreat you every time you read this book to praise his majesty exceedingly and beg of him to advance his church, to enlighten the Lutherans, and to obtain the pardon of my sins and deliverance from purgatory, where perhaps I shall be when this shall be given you, should it be published after the learned have seen it. If you meet with any error, it is because I know no better. And in everything, I submit to the judgment of the Holy Roman Catholic Church in which I live, and in which I do protest and promise I shall live and die. Praise be the Lord our God, and blessed forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. Tune in two weeks from now on November 19th for a conversation with author Rob Merchant about his book on living in an age of anxiety and finding hope in despair. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.